Welcome to the Silver Screen Guide Podcast, where we discuss films from every genre. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the podcast. Welcome back, listeners, to the final installment in our Indiana Jones retrospective series. At least for now, it's possible we might be getting a another Indiana Jones film in 2019. This has been rumored for quite a while, but as of right now, we don't have really any substantial details on it to go off of. So, yes, this is the final installment, and we are discussing Indiana Jones in the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, once again directed by Steven Spielberg. This is your co-host, Corbin. I'm Alan from Chicago. And this movie came out way after the third installment, The Last Crusade. The Last Crusade was supposed to be the final Indiana Jones film. Uh, the closing shot, which I won't spoil, just in case it's, it's not too much of a spoiler anyway, <laughs> but nevertheless, that was very symbolic for Spielberg, for Spielberg as depicting the end of the Indiana Jones adventures. He was closing the curtain on it, but nevertheless, they came back with a new idea. We're going to get into those ideas just a little bit, but first of all, this movie was written by David Kep, who has worked with Spielberg on a number of other projects. Spielberg personally chose him to come in on this one. So the story is by George Lucas and Jeff Nathanson. This movie stars Harrison Ford, Kate Blanchett, Karen Allen, Ray Winston, John Hurt, Jim Broadbent, and Igor Chajikin. Quite so a big... A couple uh, of returners, but mostly new. Yeah, mostly new, but we do have some uh, important people coming back and some very big name stars, actually. Right. Yeah, uh, I know Marion's back. Of course, Indiana Jones is back. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, we've got a couple of returners here. Marcus Brody um, didn't return, but we'll talk about, we'll mention that in a little bit. A little bit. Uh, Henry, Jones, Henry Jones Sr. didn't come back, probably for obvious reasons. So, yeah, a number of returners, uh, but mostly the two, the two that carried Raiders of the Lost Ark are back, which is exactly what they wanted. Yeah. Also, John Williams is, of course, back composing right. the score. Now, this being more in the modern age, it had a much bigger budget than the last one. The last one had, it didn't even break $50 million for the budget. This one had a budget of $85 million. So, domestically, it grossed $317 million. Overseas, $469.5 million for a worldwide total of $786.5 million. Clearly, it was a box office success. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, after, what, 19 years since uh, The Last Crusade, I'm sure people were kind of excited to get back into Indiana Jones again. Uh, and yeah, so it doesn't surprise me at all that it did really well in the box office. It had a fairly large opening. Now, this didn't have an opening anywhere near that of when Star Wars Episode Seven came back. Right. But nevertheless, it had a $100 million opening at number one. That's pretty good, but movies like Megamind and Fast and the Furious have even larger openings than that. Gotcha. So I'm just saying it's not like everybody was like, oh my gosh, this is going to be the best thing ever. We just have to run out and go see it. $100 million is good. 
but it's really not anything to write home about. Now, maybe in 2008 that was a little bit better, but nevertheless. Also, nothing else opened uh, except this movie called War, Inc. I don't know if you've ever heard of it, Alan. I have not, no. I hadn't really heard of it either. It does have John Cusack, Joan Cusack, Hilary Duff, Marissa Tomei, Dan Aykroyd, Ben Kingsley, all very big names. But it was a massive bomb at the box office. Opening weekend, it came in at number 45. Oh, wow. So that goes to show you this movie had no competition. And it was around Memorial Day weekend once again, May 22nd, 2008. Well, you want to know the uh, the gross for that movie? Because I'm looking at it right now. It's Sure. So budget is $10 million. Ah. Opening weekend, 45000 <laughs> with a limited, but that is a with a, a limited release, so a little bit of grace. Okay. Uh, total gross was five hundred eighty thousand, and Ooh. cumulative worldwide gross, uh, one point three million. Wow! So with a budget of ten and a gross of one, that is Ooh. definitely a massive, massive bomb. Yeah, it's bad. So how does this compare to how well the other movies grossed in the series? Well, it's kind of funny because without inflation. It's technically the highest grossing Indiana Jones movie, but if you are going to give it on a level playing field, because this did come out a couple decades after the other ones, it's actually the lowest grossing by quite a bit. Raiders grossed 716 domestically, Double of Doom 496 domestically, Crusade 458, and this one 409. Well, they're not too far from each other but yeah it still is the lowest grossing Mm -hmm. so what else major movies came out in 2008 well there were some pretty good ones for every crowd uh obviously the biggest one of 2008 that uh, most people would remember would be the dark knight absolutely yeah 2008 um considered by many to be one of the greatest films of all time the dark knight Yes. Also, um, some of the other, these are just the highest grossing movies of 2008, were Kung Fu Panda and WALL-E. So yeah, it was a pretty good year for for movies in general, it seems like. It is. Uh, now, currently on IMDb, this holds a 6.2, and CinemaScore, which is the official rating of audiences who actually saw the movie, gave it a B. Ooh, like that hurts. <laughs> That's really not good considering the previous Indiana Jones movies are highly regarded, have very high ratings. Uh, the last one from CinemaScore received an A. And Tipple of Doom, everybody kind of had this <clears throat> lukewarm reaction to. But this isn't, a 6.2 isn't a lukewarm reaction. That is uh, just a very kind of a mediocre uh, outlook on the movie. Yeah, very, very mediocre. Uh, yeah, this is a considerably... I know this is the lowest grossing Indiana Jones movie that we have so far, which is not not great. But if I was putting myself in the shoes of a, an Indiana Jones fan in 2008, judging by the trailer, I would be excited to see this movie the trailer is 
I would say a well-cut callback to the original movies. And it gets me really excited for the new one. It reminisces with the old adventures and shows me we're going to go on a brand new adventure for the new millennium. Yeah, and I actually do remember watching this trailer back in the day, uh, back in 2008, and I was very excited. It was actually around this time because I had just seen uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark for the first time no more than maybe a couple years and so I got to see this trailer, and I still remember this trailer very vividly, and I remember being very, very excited to see it in theaters. I never did get to see it in theaters, though, which is unfortunate. I don't remember if I saw it in theaters. In 2008, I would have been around, well, by May, I would have been 15 years old, so I would have been old enough to go see it. I have a feeling I did go see it in the theater, probably with my dad. And this was one of the first Blu-rays I actually ever got. The other two, the first Blu-ray I ever got before I even had a Blu-ray player because I thought, hey, maybe the Blu-ray might work on my DVD player. Yes. I was willing to take that chance. Yeah, <laughs> I, it was a nightmare before Christmas. Oh, yeah, that's right. We talked about this. Yes. And then I finally did get a Blu-ray player and my parents got me the Johnny Depp gangster movie Public Enemies. And I do remember getting this one. I owned the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull years before I got the rest of the indie films. I have watched this one the most, actually. I watched it numerous times. I always really enjoyed watching it. So we'll see how my thoughts on it have changed now that I'm in my 20s and I've got my SSG goggles on. Yeah, so this is nothing new to you. This is something you've kind of grown up on, at least for the last, uh, I guess, eight, four, uh, about ten years now. So, yeah, I've seen this twice. Uh, I watched it a couple, about a year and a half ago uh, for the first time back in my, I guess, was apartment at the time. And I remember not being extremely happy about it, but it had been a couple of years since then. So I decided I'd go in with an open mind. And so here we are to talk about it, but it seems like you're the one who's seen it the most out of both of us. So it'll be interesting to see what you have to say to it since you just know it more than I do. I guess I actually would have been 13, not 15. Okay. So who knows if I saw it in the theater? Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. regardless, I do remember getting it on Blu-ray for Christmas and I have the two disc collector's edition that comes with the digibook it's got a bunch of bonus features on the main disc and the second disc and it has a forward by steven spielberg and a something by harrison ford and lots of uh insights into how they shot the movie and on set and everything so more information than you probably would want to know but i got it in a very nice it's like a slip cover, but mm -hmm. you slip it in from the side and it like encompasses the whole movie except for the right side of it, which you clearly used to slip out of it. So gotcha. Yeah. So it's one the of those premium nice packaging ones. I own. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, as we said, this movie was kind of not really ever going to happen in the minds of Spielberg at least and possibly Lucas, but I think Lucas. This was always, for the most part, really his creation anyway. So I think he always kind of wanted to come back. And I know Harrison Ford definitely was always up for coming back for a fourth movie. He had so much fun 
creating the first three and working with Lucas and Spielberg and Kathleen Kennedy and uh, Marshall, the producer. So he was always ready for another one. I just don't think they realized uh, Ford would have to wait till he was 65 years old to come back because this movie is uh, the other one came out in 89 and this one came out in 2008. So that's what, what is that? Like uh, 19 years. Yeah. That'd be right about 19 years when it, when it was released at least. That's a long time for a sequel, but um, this is not the longest that Harrison Ford has waited to make a sequel to his movie considering Blade Runner 2049 recently came out and that was like 30 years or something. Yeah, it was pretty close to 30 years uh, when that one was released. So yeah, isn't the longest sequel that Harrison Ford has had to wait to do. And one of Spielberg's kind of motivations for coming back to this was he wanted to honor the memory of the character and give a new adventure to those who grew up with Jones, or at least just knew him in their adulthood and grew up with him in that way. But he also wanted to introduce him to those who didn't grow up with him. And like I said, we had quite a few failed attempts with the indie movies because we quickly came to realize those aren't kid-friendly. And this one is much more kid-friendly, I will say, than the other ones. At least maybe not kid-friendly, but if you're kind of in that tweens era area, then you're probably safe to watch this one. But that's kind of, uh, that, that applies to me. Because like I said, I didn't watch the other ones. I saw bits and pieces, far too scary for me. So this fourth one was... Uh, my introduction, really my introduction to the character in the series. Right. And I had seen Raiders of the Lost Ark before this. So I guess when I said that I watched it when I was 16, I was that was a lie because I didn't exactly think that I was more like 12 when I first saw it. But yeah, this was meant, this is, this is nothing new. We see this with Star Wars, kind of with Blade Runner 2049, where it's ushering in a sequel slash reboot to a new generation. So this is nothing new that we've seen so far. And it's just interesting that Indiana Jones is one of the earlier ones to do that. But at the same time, uh, at the same time, it did kind of have an interesting production because they had scripts ready to go in 1992. And this didn't get released until 2008. Yeah, they had at least... Uh, ideas maybe for what they could do as far as back then um, my blu-ray gave me the entire production timeline really? so yeah it did from and that's where i have it down to 1992 actually harrison ford did return as indy for a two-part episode of the young indiana jones which was set in the 1950s wyoming and that is when lucas had the idea for a fourth movie and he thought hey the first three movies were inspired by 1930s serial adventures so lucas said let's do a fourth movie modeled after the 1950s science fiction b movies and everybody was uh eager to do a fourth but they were all extremely skeptical about the idea of alien slash ufo themes in the movie i mean i would be it's indiana jones he hasn't exactly dealt with anything 
supernatural like that. It's more of it's more or less been grounded in religion, more or less, whatever kind of religion that may be. Right. Yes, he did deal with these kind of pagan gods. Well, not kind of, they are, but nothing to do with extraterrestrials. That's yeah. Like it, it just seems weird to me that George Lucas had this epiphany while filming an Indiana, a young Indiana Jones movie or episode that he would use aliens in 1950s with the Soviets and all this kind of stuff for the next Indiana Jones adventure. It seems like. Like how? Where? How did he come to that conclusion? I just want, I'm just curious to know where that came from. Yeah, I think he probably still had Star Wars on the brain because he was developing this idea because he was he really thought it would work. He was really right. invested in it, but he did get sidetracked because he developed Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace during this right. time period. That's true. It wasn't until February 27, 2000, where Ford was honored at an AFI gala uh, with this Life Achievement Award, and Lucas, Spielberg, Kennedy, and Marshall, the kind of big creators of the series, they all reminisced about old times, and Lucas said, let's make a fourth, and they're like, they all said yes, and this is really where that kicked off and actually the first story conference for this movie took place april 12th 2000 yeah so i guess it would be considered development hell that they at least a little bit for a while it just kind of took a took a bit to get things going with this movie because it went through a cup of quite a few rewrites with the script and ideas floating back and forth uh, to get it to the final draft that was ready in about 2007 when they started shooting. Right. Basically, they had to convince Spielberg and right. Ford. Basically, Lucas had to convince everybody this idea of aliens would be a good adventure for Indy to embark upon and it would get audience in the seats. And yeah, it did take about two years for them to really get the main story elements down. So 2002, it's a long production history. And not, I mean, not the longest ever, right. clearly. I mean, movies are in development hell for like 70 years sometime. Right. Like some right. Ridiculous. And to be fair, uh, even Ford was like not really willing to do it with Spielberg because he's just like that idea. I don't, I don't know if I want to do that with Spielberg because both him and Spielberg refused it at first. But Harrison Ford ended up warming up to it a bit more before Spielberg did. But yeah, it just it's just funny that both the director and the main lead were kind of like, what what is this idea when they were when they were when it's presented to them? Right. And uh, I do know that Lucas was uh, kind of interested in this idea of ancient astronauts, which really only came to the public's knowledge in the 1970s with a book called Chariot of the Gods. And it really didn't have any scientific fact to it, and it's just mostly been discredited. But nevertheless, also these ideas of crystal skulls is, I guess there's such a thing as these types of skulls, I don't know. But regardless, Lucas said this idea had long fascinated him, and that's why he'd been formulating that with this idea. But uh, are you... How familiar are you with this ancient astronaut theory, Alan? Um, 
I know I've heard of it, but I'm not necessarily, I wouldn't consider myself all-knowing because I don't really know much about it. I know the idea, and I've seen the show Ancient Aliens before, yep. um, which is almost, it feels like this is either heavily based off of that show, or it was the other way around, the show was heavily based off this movie. Um, either way, it that's what I'm, that's what I more or less am referring to when I say that I've heard of it. Yeah, if have you seen Prometheus? Yeah. Okay, that's the plot. That's ancient alien. That's ancient astronauts that gotcha. these gotcha. aliens came to Earth, essentially either created us or taught us how to create tools and fire and whatnot. Also, AVP uh, heavily right. is based off this ancient astronauts idea concept. But honestly, probably the most popular, the most well done, I would say, is that of Prometheus. But nevertheless, this movie does draw upon that theory as well. It is interesting to note that there is a ride at Tokyo Disney Sea called Indiana Jones Adventure Temple of the Crystal Skull that existed since 2001. But it has huh. nothing to do with the movie. Interesting. I did not know that. Like I said, Spielberg picked David Kep, who wrote The Lost World and War of the Worlds, neither of which I think are very good. And he was asked by Spielberg to write the draft for this one. And he completed his draft on July 28th, 2006. Publicly, January 2nd, 2007, the movie was announced. And it was slated for release May 22nd, 2008. And they did hit their release. And it is kind of funny because... Uh, there was two announcements that were fairly big, at least they treated it that way, for the movie. And that was the first announcement being Shia LaBeouf. Right. So on February 20th, 2007, LaBeouf was announced he would be in the new movie because Spielberg was so impressed by his acting in Holes, Disturbia, and Transformers. And Lucas thought he would be the perfect son for Jones and Marion. And I am not going to really comment on those movies. I, aside from, I do enjoy them. I think they're fairly enjoyable movies. But I'm a little surprised Spielberg, Spielberg said he went and saw Holes with his kids. And he's like, I got to have him for Indiana Jones. He's so good and amazing. Right. But this would be, this would have been about the time uh these few years when Shia LaBeouf was uh pretty a pretty big actor. He was, yeah. Pretty big actor. He's now since moved on to other things like He Will Not Divide Us, which is I think been shut down. <laughs> um but then revived and then shut oh, down gosh. again and then revived. And I don't know where he's at now, but that was his last project that he had on his hands. Uh so at the time at least he was a pretty Pretty well-known and versatile actor for, you know, like you were saying, Holes. And then later on in a more mature role, he did Transformers, which I th which is one of basically the movie that got him the role for this, um, I think. So, so yeah, it, about this time, this was pretty much Shia LaBeouf's golden age of acting. Right. Now, as of what his character would be, originally Lucas wanted the character to not be a boy, but he wanted it to be a girl. Kind of like how he wanted... The character of Short Round to actually be this virginal princess in India. Once again, Spielberg went out and said, no, we're doing a boy. And Lucas said, okay, he's going to be a nerd. And Spielberg said, no, he's a greaser. 
So <laughs> interesting, right? And uh, also, the personal note Spielberg wrote to Shia said, "Now it's time to transform yourself into mutt." Interesting. Yeah. So uh, Spielberg set Shia to the task of watching and studying uh, Blackboard Jungle, Rebel Without a Cause, and especially the wild one where Marlon Brando's character is, um, his character directly inspires the look of Mutt. I've never seen the wild one. I've been in Spangles a billion times, and I know of Blackboard Jungle from Spangles, and I know of what Marlon Brando's character looks like from those posters in Spangles. And of course, I've seen Rebel Without a Cause quite a few times classic love that movie but yeah when i did see shia i was like okay somebody thinks they're brando here because his costume literally looks as a little translation of really um brando's character like the clothes and the hat and everything i'm like okay that's really close interesting yeah i mean i haven't seen any of those movies i do know of them um especially rebel without a cause from la la land but yeah, haven't seen any of them, so I couldn't give my own opinion. Well, Karen Allen's uh, announcement was probably the best-kept secret uh, for a long time, and many fans actually were hoping Sean Connery would return. He was still alive at this time. Uh, he was, They would hope he'd come back for at least a cameo, but he had retired from acting in 2005, and this rumor wouldn't die that Connery was coming back. So Connery added his own note to the Lucasfilm press release saying, that he loved being a part of Indy 3, but here's a quote, retirement was too much damned fun. So, good <laughs> for him, I guess. So, yeah, I guess he was having, he had a blast on Indiana Jones, but having more of a blast being retired, I guess. Yes, but Karen Allen was eventually announced that was, and she was shocked. She was hoping she would at least be called back for a cameo, but she it really was touching to her. She was going to play a central role in the movie. Right, right. And this is, yeah, one of the, like you were saying, one of the best kept secrets that we get uh, Marion Ravenwood back, or I guess in the movie before we before we know it's Marion and she's known as Mary Williams. Also, the title for the movie wasn't announced until September 9th, 2007 by Shia LaBeouf at the MTV Awards of all places. I don't know why they chose that. And huh. apparently it was Spielberg who came up with the Crystal Skull portion, and Lucas came up with the Kingdom part. And apparently this was a very difficult task. Interesting. <laughs> I wouldn't ever guess that. Here's two final pieces of trivia before we get into spoilers in the plot. And this is for uh, film buffs that I think you will find very fascinating that I didn't know before. So Spielberg and the editor Michael Kahn, who they've worked together ever since Close Encounters, they actually edited this movie by splicing and cutting a 35mm work print on a Kim flatbed editor and viewing it on a Mav- Maviola upright editor. And they're the last editor, director slash editor pair to do this, and it is a point of pride for Spielberg. So yeah, they just like in the other Indiana Jones movies, they went with the old-fashioned route of using film and edit, and using a uh, I guess a linear editor to to do this. Uh, yeah, that is very interesting. I was wondering if it, if this was shot on film when I was watching it, and it, I guess it was. Yeah, it was. Okay, 
I figure I figured it was. I never did look up to see if that was actually true. Yep, it is definitely true. Also, yeah. I learned yeah. the final stage of a film is the nerve-wracking audio mix where the director works with the composer and sound editors to incorporate the music, dialogue, and sound effects, adjusting the volume and balance of each separate element scene by scene. Yep. We went now you and I went over that in uh, our last discussion podcast that was just part of the editing phase where yeah. once the scene is composed and ready to go they'll go in and do all the audio mixing that's the very last thing they do it sounds pretty stressful and it does sound like quite the task but uh, it does like kind of when you do put it in those terms and think about it it does give you more appreciation for those Oscar categories for the people who win and what they've like done with those movies right well, listeners, we are about to jump into spoilers for the fourth Indiana Jones movie. If you don't want it spoiled for you, then go ahead and click pause. It is on Prime Video to stream right now with that subscription, or just run down to your local store, or just download it in your home. We live in the 21st century. So go ahead and hit pause. If you haven't seen it and you don't want it spoiled, go watch it, come back and hit play, and we will be ready to jump in and talk about it. The Cold War is in full swing and America has reached its height of the Red Scare, and for good reason. It's been 19 years since Indiana Jones' last adventure. Indy, reprised by Harrison Ford, finds himself kidnapped by a group of rogue Russians led by the nefarious Irina Spalko, played by Kate Blanchett in the Nevada desert, where they break into the top-secret Area 51. With the help of Indy, along with his old MI6 friend, Mac, played by Ray Winston, the group finds the remains of an ancient alien. But before the body can be examined, in a daring chase, Indy escapes the clutches of the Russians to only find himself in Nuketown, a military testing site for the atomic bomb. Barely escaping the blast of the bomb, Indy is interrogated by the FBI, who question his loyalty to his country. This causes an unintended repercussion of Indy being fired from his teaching position at Marshall University. On his way out of town, he stopped by streetwise greaser Mutt Williams, played by Shia LaBeouf, who tells him he's carrying a message from Oxley, played by John Hurt. Indy's old friend, who is obsessed with finding the mythical crystal skulls, derived from a 7,000-year-old ancient legend about the Amazonian city of Akator, or aka El Dorado, where the people had technology that wouldn't be seen in the world for another 5,000 years. The crystal skulls were supposedly stolen from Akator in roughly the 15th to 16th century, and whoever returns the skulls will be given unlimited power. Mutt, a close friend of Ox, also explains his mother went missing looking for Ox, but is now on the run from those who captured Ox, and he and Indy must go to save them both. Before finishing their conversation, they are interrupted by two KGB agents, but Indy and Mutt start a massive greaser versus Soch brawl, allowing them to mount a daring escape on Mutt's motorcycle. Once safely away from the KGB agents, they hop a plane to Nazca, Peru, where they believe Oxley's message follow the lines in the earth only gods can read, to find Oriana's cradle, Will was hinting at the location of the crystal skull. This makes sense because of the Nazca lines, giant drawings in the ground only recognizable from a bird's eye view, or the view of the gods. After unearthing more clues in Oxley's former residence, 
Indian Mutt travel to an old cemetery located on a bluff above the Nazca Lines. There they must fight grave guardians. I don't know what they're doing there, but they must fight these wild ninja monkey people to find the secret of the tombs, that being the last resting place of Oriana, Spanish conquistador of South America, who disappeared along with some of his men. Except the only problem is the skull has been taken from the tomb. While leaving the cemetery, they are intercepted by Mac and taken deep into the heart of the Amazon. There, they are reunited with Spalco, who explains she desires the ultimate power of mind control of the world, which she believes will be granted to her if she returns the skull. She also believes the only way to figure the location of Akator is by having Indy stare into the skull, which she has taken from Oxley. This nearly causes Indy to go mad, and he soon finds his old friend Ox to be a prisoner of the camp and that he himself has gone mad from being forced to stare in the skull. Also, Mutt and his mom are reunited, who just so happens to be Marion Ravenwood, reprised by Karen Allen, who promptly informs Indy that Mutt is actually his son. See, 17 some odd years ago, Indy left Marion a week before their wedding day, and little did Indy know Marion was with child. Spalco breaks up the family reunion and gets Indy to help her find the general location of Akator through the help of Oxley's auto-writing, information which he recovered from staring into the skull. Indy helps Spalco until Mutt causes a distraction which allows them to escape, but unfortunately Oxley gets them recaptured. On their way to Akator, Indy and friends have a big fight and chase with Spalco's Russian gang, causing her to lose most of her crew and the possession of the Crystal Skull. Not heeding Oxley's warning of three times it drops, Indy's crew, now reaccompanied by Mac, who claims he is actually a double agent for the CIA, go over three waterfalls, but thankfully they are unscathed and right at the doorstep of Akator, represented by a King Kong Skull Island type of image. Mutt suggests they just get rid of the skull, but Indy says no, they have to return it because the skull told him to. While sneaking through Akator, they are suddenly chased by Akator guardians, but by showing the skull, they are saved from a horrible death. Oh, good. Glad we uh, didn't have to deal with that. Yeah, that's <laughs> Day X Crystal Skullia. Right. Spalco is also hot on the trail of Indy because Mac has been dropping trackers. Turns out he's not a double agent, but a triple agent. <laughs> Inside Akator, they find many treasures of the world, but the real mystery lies within the throne room. A circular chamber with 13 crystal skeletons. Indy returns the 13th skull to its rightful owner, which causes the temple to break apart due to an interdimensional spaceship hidden within the temple Yeah, uh, to start sucking everything up. Indy and his crew escape, but Spalco asks the, the hive-minded ancient astronauts for unlimited knowledge, which they give her, but to her surprise, she can't handle it all, causing her mind to literally catch on fire as her body is incinerated. While watching the craft fly away, Mutt asks where they are going, to which Oxley replies, to the spaces between spaces. Back in the States, Indy... <laughs> Back in the States, Indy and Marion finally get married. At the end of the ceremony, 
The wind blows the chapel doors open, pushing Indy's hat to Mutt's feet, alluding destiny may have plans for Mutt to take up his father's mantle. But before Mutt can don the famous fedora, Indy takes it out of his hands to place it in his own hands and on his head with a sly smile, insinuating Indy's adventures aren't over yet as credits roll. I wish you could see our faces. Oh <laughs> I'm just, I'm just honestly baffled. Okay. Indiana Jones has always kind of dealt with the supernatural. That's nothing new. Right. That we've had, uh, we've had the last three have some kind of supernatural element yes. to it to more or less spice up the adventure. Oh, yeah. Right. We have, but those are always kind of grounded in some kind of reality around it. They, it gives a credence to the those elements being there. I don't understand why we decided that aliens needed to be a part of Indiana Jones. I don't know why that's a good idea. I mean, I liked I like the big overall uh, theme of knowledge. Knowledge is power, but aliens. Yeah, uh, David Kep, who wrote the script kind of gave a little bit of insight into this. He said that the kind of mythology of Indiana Jones has always worked well by taking, you know, quote, real uh, religious or supernatural artifacts and kind of kind of bending and molding Indy's story within those. And I would agree with him. I think that has worked well, except for Temple of Doom. You can go back and listen to my review of that. I think a I think that was a stretch with what they're going with and mainstream audiences right. weren't really enthused with that. This is even more so a major stretch because nobody's ever heard of crystal skulls. I mean, I guess some people have, but majority of people haven't heard of this. Indiana Jones and aliens does seem like a very odd pairing. And Spielberg said he wanted to make this like a fifties sci-fi B movie. Well, mission not accomplished because sci-fi B movies, as far as I know, I've never heard of one dealing with Amazonian interdimensional crystal skulls. Uh, it just doesn't make sense. This does not work as a 50s sci-fi B movie at all. There's like basically no callbacks really at all because those movies were about aliens and monsters, but this this doesn't do it because the whole movie was about the alien or monster not the very end right this this is no invasion of the body snatchers or anything like that now to be fair spielberg did kind of want to move away from the sci-fi b horror when that was one of the things that more or less convinced him to be to get on to this project again but yeah this idea of aliens is it just kind of feels like a cop-out when you really think about it because I really do like this idea of knowledge and the pursuit of knowledge uh, from a historical standpoint. I think that's a really interesting idea. I think it definitely could fit inside the Indiana Jones lore. But using aliens is just stupid. Yeah, I did read in the trivia on the Blu-ray disc that Stalin was interested in mind control and this kind of supernatural occultic power which we do hear right. uh, Spalco reference Stalin being interested in that, but that's not really what 
we get here. It's more of a goofy interaction between Spalco all the time, thinking she does have like this ESP force type power, how she holds up her hand to Indy's face and Indy just chuckles and totally disillusions her to her own power. Yeah, you're right. right. There is a potentially interesting idea about the pursuit of ultimate knowledge um, either being this corruptive power or this all-consuming controlling power, but that's really not handled well here and touched upon in very silly, you know, very light ways. Right. Uh, I will say I do like how the opening credits for this movie are a direct callback to the opening credits of at least the third one. I I don't remember the opening credits of the other two. Maybe they are, but at least the third one. That was a nice visual cue that really connected mm-hmm. me with that one. And Yeah, it was nice seeing that old Paramount logo. Oh, yeah. And then the black text with the white board around him. Yeah, oh, it was those callbacks were nice. Yeah. You just kind of knew from that the point that you were in an Indiana Jones movie. That was a neat uh, kind of transportation back to that time. The third one opened in the desert. This one's open opens in the desert as well. It's a different desert, but regardless, um, I'm a little confused that teenagers are like drag racing in the desert or just, I don't know, speeding through the desert over CGI gopher holes. Uh, I don't yeah. know. <laughs> In what and it's okay. So the gophers are a pretty big visual here in the opening. Yeah, and then they never come back at all in the rest of the no, movie. It's oh well, the kingdom of the gophers. <laughs> I was thinking it's going to be like some kind of, I mean, some kind of imagery for something, but that no. <laughs> I will say it's a fairly exciting opening where these soldiers. Uh, assassinate the other soldiers and you're like wait a minute what's going on and then you realize they're not u.s soldiers they're actually russians and i gotta say the introduction to indy in this movie i like it because at the same time it shows that he is older uh he's not the young guy that would just be running around and knocking people out which we will get here fairly soon but it does kind of uh i think it does respect his age but at the same time, it's uh, it gives us an interesting twist. Why is Indy in the clutches of these Russians? Right. And I mean, I think that this could have been handled a bit better because I'm not a big fan of this opening, mainly because uh, the other three have always opened with Indy, with, usually with Indy uh, beginning his adventure and more or less he's been a free spirit. And then this one, he's captured for some reason, which is interesting that they would re, which is which would be fine if they did this in one of the previous movies, but I guess they kind of did it in Last Crusade. But with this one, it's a reintroduction to Indiana Jones, and the first thing that they, they show that the first thing that they show is Indy being captured by the Soviets. It just seems like an odd choice to me. I don't really, I don't not the, the biggest fan of it. We also do have um, something that's pretty much lifted from the third one and mac is we come to find out a double agent just like schneider was a double agent right yeah and he ends up being a triple agent and i guess maybe a quadruple agent because at the very end he switches back mac ah this guy so i okay so i hadn't seen i had seen bits and pieces of the previous three but this is the first 
Indiana Jones movie I watched all the way through. I was very confused on the character of Mac because they set him up like he's Indy's old pal. They've been on, and they do say between the time of three and four, they went on 30 missions together because they both were government agents, but for two different governments, Indy worked for the OSS, which I had no idea what that was until I looked it up, which is the Office of Strategic Services created by FDR in 1942 as America's wartime intelligence. And it was dissolved by Truman in 1945. And then the CIA was basically created. So, yeah, and Mac was always MI6 until we learned that he's supposedly CIA. Yeah, right. But this character of Mac... Who knows what he actually right. is. This character of Mac did always confuse me, though, uh, because of how they set him up. And then I went and saw the other movies, and I'm like, okay, he has nothing to do with those. I think they just right. give him too much of a place of importance of him being this, oh, yeah, this is Indy's oldest friend over here, you know, his most trusted ally. Right. <sighs> right. I absolutely agree. And, I mean, I get the reason why he's here. He's a representation of greed. Because he literally says in the opening that I'm just I just play with the one who pays the most, and the Russians here have the most money. And then he switches back later because he hears that they're going to the city of gold, and Indiana Jones is the one in front of the Soviets. He that's his moral. That's more. Or less where he is standing morally is that he just wants money, and then the very end he kind of learns that well, it's too late. Um, but he switches back and forth so much that he becomes a plot device. Right. There really is no great reason for him to be in this movie except to just excite the plot some more. It just kind of feels like whenever there needs to be a shift in tone, they'll switch his character around. Right. I also did think it was interesting how Max said, uh, I'm a capitalist and I just basically go to the highest payer. Well, that's not what capitalism is. He's a mercenary. That's what a mercenary right. is. So we kind of have this brief anti-capitalist message in there. And I don't know why they chose to do that. I just thought it was interesting. But this Area 51 location, we've seen it before. This is the last area we see in the very end of Raiders of the Lost Ark when they're putting right. the Ark of the Covenant away and we do literally see the Ark of the Covenant once again, not just a pictograph on a wall like in the third one, but we see the box has kind of been blown open and we get another callback to it once again. Um, I thought right. that was a good idea. There's no way they could go to this location and not show that to us. But I do think it's kind of interesting. We're exploring this massive warehouse. What secrets does it hold? Because in the into the first one it was huge so that is a curiosity and i think if they're going to go with aliens it's the right choice to return to this place right yeah and if at the very air 51 has always been known for aliens and stuff like that whether or not that's the actual reason for it we don't have definitive proof uh but yeah air 51 is a great choice i i yeah and i do really enjoy that they brought called back to uh, the Ark of the Covenant, not just with the visuals, but they also have the theme playing when they enter this this big uh, this big uh, warehouse. So yeah, it's nice to have this uh, that come back. But at the same time, though, it's interesting that the skull is magnetized, right? So Indy takes gunpowder out and flings it in the air, and he watches it being drawn 
to wherever the skull is being kept at, or I guess whatever. Is it the skull that's being in that box? Um, it's a alien's physical body, but yes, underneath is the entire skeleton. Okay, that's right. That's right. But it's this scene. It, I don't know. It it kind of just feels like they find it way too easily, and this giant warehouse that uh that has so much stuff in it. The one thing that's magnetized, which only is magnetized when it really wants to be, because at one moment uh, it's kind of dragging everything that's metal towards it, and then uh, later on in the scene, it's like nothing's being, and like it's like nothing's being reacted to it. Not even the boxes around it that have metal things in it is being drawn towards this one box. Yeah, that's a good point. That apparently it is the only magnetized object in the entirety of the warehouse that I honestly never thought about that. But yeah, you do have to just suspend your, you know, belief and just go with it, I guess. But yeah, it is a fairly quick find, but I think what we're kind of hoping for is to get away from, um, Kate Blanchett who just looks odd. She's a very odd character. I love the line. Uh, well, the way you're sickened into those sinking your teeth into those wubba Love that line. That was funny. Um, yeah. But what we really are here for is to see Indy get some action going because we have that in the opening of all of them. He always deals with the bad guy right up front. Now, they may not be the main antagonist, but they might be, and this one just so happens to be. And then there's always a big uh, chase usually that ensues. And I think this chase is really exciting. I think this is great action to open up the movie with uh, we go to a few different locations i love when he uses his whip to swing from that lamp that was very exciting and we still kind of have that classic jones humor where they kind of look at each other and then they start punching and I-, I like it yeah yeah and i yeah i do enjoy this action scene but it just it's weird that we have a car chase in this giant warehouse that just seems odd uh to me but whatever it's it's a pretty fun action scene uh and they do spielberg does film it as if it was like from a regular from those past indiana jones movies he loves using wide shots and that's a show a lot and only uses only uses close-ups when he needs to to heighten the action uh yeah this is a pretty good action scene um but at the same time i kind of wish that there's a bit more weight to it because it just kind of feels like oh we just have we just have action just so indy can escape uh, and it just kind of feels like it goes on for just a hair too long than probably what it should. I don't I guess I didn't think about it going on for too long. There is quite a bit of kind of moving parts to it, you could say, with what right. he does and how he finally gets out of there, ending with this big rocket blast um, on this rail out into the desert. You do see the gophers again. So mm-hmm. the gophers do come back as they watch this car shoot into the desert night. Uh, which was kind of crazy and unexpected, and it, it knocks out the Russians. Uh, but then we get to Nuketown, which I'm telling you, Black Ops ripped this off. They just lifted it up. They're like, hey, I like that. Let's do that. Oh, yeah. So yeah, it was cool <laughs> to see it. it I, I always enjoyed this um, nuclear scene. I didn't get a chance to look up if putting yourself in a lead-lined refrigerator would save you from a nuclear blast, but I have a feeling it wouldn't. 
it might save you from the radiation around you, but being jostled around and they're flying through the air, no. Indiana Jones is dead. <laughs> There's that and why why did we need to go? Well, I guess I understand why. I guess it's during the Cold War. But it just this is so silly to me that Indiana Jones goes from Air 51, walks his way all the way to Nuketown, or a Nuketown, and then right as they're about to shoot off a uh, nuclear, like doing a nuclear bomb test, he's there, hops inside a lead line fridge, is flown across uh, the desert, I suppose, found by the, I guess, FBI at this yeah. point, and that's how he gets back to the university. It just, it feels unneeded almost. Like I understand why it's here because of the time, but it just kind of feels unneeded that we have all these steps to jump. I through. think they're just hoping to draw people in with uh, an exciting opening. Just do something bigger, a nuclear bomb, Area 51, aliens, swinging from lamps, rocket cars in the desert. It's a pretty big opening that we really haven't seen before. I guess you could say right. it is comparative to the opening of Temple of Doom, where there's a lot of different moving parts going on. That one is very chaotic. This one does feel a little more structured, although making the jump from Area 51 to Nuketown is like two big events that just so happen to coincide very quickly together. Correct me if I'm wrong, but aren't are there Russians in Nuketown also? They were looking for Indiana Jones. Those are the guys that were looking for him earlier when the rocket car flew out okay. from the base. They went to go look for him and Indy hid, and so they made their way back uh, up to gotcha. Nuketown. Uh, that's where they were continue to, continuing to look for him. I did like the shot of Indy uh, looking at the mushroom cloud. Mm -hmm. That was a cool shot, yes, but... I mean, okay, in the last few, yes, we do have an opening sequence, an opening action scene, and it's meant to set up the character and all sorts of stuff. But... At least, the, at least those last three had great purpose right. to them. This one, nothing really except for the Russians ever comes back. Whereas in those last few, we have almost every element in the opening come back in some kind of way. Yeah, I mean, the first one introduces us to the villain. The second one, Indy, needs the anecdote, plus he gets his two sidekicks that way. And then the opening of the third one is his connection with the cross of... Coronado, which I do feel is self-contained. I guess there's a kind of a lesson to be learned there, but it's mostly a self-contained opening. And I don't think that one really plays into the rest of it with the third one. But I think what would have set this one up as more of a sci-fi 50s B-movie is if this nuclear blast would have played into the Crystal Skulls somehow. Maybe the nuke um, activated them in such a way or transformed it or did something to it because that's kind of a trope of those 50s type of movies is the nuclear radiation creates the monster well we kind of have right. the nuclear radiation which maybe is just a visual callback to those movies but it has no consequence to it so i can see what you're saying it it would have been more substantial if it actually played into a purpose with the plot but i just see it as a self-contained opening which i don't think is um, it's not necessarily without precedent. Right. I mean, and it's fine to have a self-contained opening to introduce a bunch of stuff. Like the first one, the only thing, I mean, it, okay, the, the first opening does a really good job at presenting the character and talking uh, and like showing us 
where the character's at intellectually and how uh, street smart he is, all this kind of stuff. So it's not like the first opening, even though it is about this idol that never really comes back. That's The idol is not necessarily the point. The point is introduce, introducing us to this character and where we're going and uh, and how, how he operates in this environment he'll later show to do later on in every other environment. This one... I mean, the I can understand the opening to A51. That's fine. But the Nuketown sequence, I mean, I understand why they have it here because it is the 1950s and a nuclear, there was a bunch of nuclear scares going on because it is the Cold War, obviously. It just kind of feels like, it just kind of feels like we're wasting time just to get to the re- to the real story. It, it just feels like if they cut this out completely, nothing would have changed. At all. I always liked it, so I'm not going to be too picky about it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but, uh, okay. So, but Indy does have to get rid of some radiation, I guess, just through scrubbing him. And uh, here's, I put in my notes, good body for an old guy. He he yeah. does. Look, he doesn't have that dad bod like you would No, he, he actually fit into his original costume. He was still able to at age oh, 65. Wow. That's very impressive. That is very impressive. Well, okay, so I do have an issue with this scene where he's being interrogated by the FBI because they're making the FBI out to be bad guys. They just automatically assume Indy is not loyal to his country, even though he did all these missions with Mac. And we do find out Mac isn't loyal to his country either. But we also... This scene is also very confusing to me because this general or somebody just comes in to vouch for Indy. Honestly, this is the scene that has no real consequence later on, except it, I guess it causes Indy to get fired because the FBI needlessly raids his house. They find nothing. Every movie has a ransacking scene where somebody's room gets ransacked. Usually that's just kind of a trope of the indie movies, but it's really right. playing up this red scare of uh everybody's a communist and everybody's under suspicion and i did notice in the special features they clearly wanted to tell you that hollywood was very demonized by the government because clearly the hollywood people were communists i just thought it was this kind of needless overly done anti-government rhetoric of oh you see how bad they are they're gonna mess up your life and it was all very confusing and muddled to me Right. And I mean, I could understand why it's here because this is the 50s and you have the Red Scare happening, which is fine that they need to at least make some mention of it because I feel like that is probably important because we are dealing with the Soviets in this movie. Um, But yeah, this scene goes on. At the very least, it does set a few things up like the how deep the relationship with Indy and Mac goes and how Indy has been in the war and has served in the war before. Um, but at the same time, yeah, this could have just been condensed into another scene and just a couple of lines instead of setting out, instead of trying to set all of these things up. I mean, I understand the FBI and that doesn't bother me a terrible amount, but I do kind of agree this scene has a, lo- a number of things in it, but a number of things that could have been worked into other scenes pretty easily and still retain the knowledge that we gain from this scene. It, the, the setting doesn't necessarily... I just feel like they could have skipped the Nuketown scene and this scene and just went straight to the university, have him have one shot of him getting uh, there somehow. 
and really nothing much would have changed. That, yeah, you're exactly right. I guess my issue with it is it's painting the these government agents as representing the government. It's just too black and white as, oh, clearly they're from the government. And so they're just needlessly rude. They're needlessly condescending. And like I said, those special features were like the government was terrible to Hollywood. And they're like, we're going to make sure you guys know that how terrible they were in this right. movie and just it it just felt very too um too flat to me they're too one-dimensional yeah. too petty right right they're like oh okay clearly they're the bad guys and i'm like okay so first you don't like capitalism right. and now the government yeah. it just they're just kind of slipping these things in there to kind of get us against some of these things right and like i said i can understand having some of this stuff sure. because Sure. The Red Scare. But at the same time, yeah, when is it pushed to a limit where it's just, why are we still on right. this? Yeah, usually whatever the bad guy is talking about is usually the thing we should be rooting against. So that's why I can't help but notice those two things are coming from bad guys and it seems to be against those. But anyways, we can go ahead and move on. So he gets to the college and uh, we have... Uh, we don't have um, Marcus Brody back because I believe the actor was deceased. So instead, we have yeah. Jim Broadbent, who is kind of a famous British actor that I know from Harry Potter and something else. But his character is pretty much pointless in this movie. I don't know why they got Jim Broadbent for this role because he basically does nothing except uh, you're fired, I quit, you get maybe you get severance, mm-hmm. and then at the end, he um, is at the wedding. Right. Yeah, he is more or less just the stand-in for Marcus Brody. Although we do get to see a statue of Marcus yeah. Brody uh, a little bit later on in an action scene. So we do have that. But yeah, this guy is more or less just the stand-in. And it somehow tries to create some weight because he says, yeah, you're basically being fired. But they're still going to pay you, you your salary. But I own, it only happened because I resigned. There's like If this was Marcus Brody, and I understand that if he is deceased, which it sounds like he is then it isn't, this isn't possible. But at the same time, it, it, I don't, it just kind of creates, tries to create some weight to the situation that kind of doesn't really need to be there. Right. We do also have Marcus, or I'm sorry. It's not Marcus. I miss him. Not. Uh, yeah. We do have, uh, whatever his name is. I didn't even write his name down. Jim Broadbent's character saying, they have a scene communists in our soup. And just right after this, we get, what we think may be FBI, but they're KGB, which further conflates the Red Scare to a height I don't know if it really was, where it was like mass paranoia on such a scale where it's like everybody is under suspicion, your neighbors are communists, and uh, this does seem over-embellished to me and kind of conflating the FBI or our government and the KGB is like, which one's really the enemy here? Right. I mean, I guess we we do have historical accounts that it was a pretty big thing. I, from what I understand, it was much bigger back in the, I want to say, forties and fifties. Whenever the first Red Scare happened, it was much bigger back then, uh, where that was more or less just very, very much a it was mass paranoia more than it was here. This isn't this from what I understand wasn't nearly as bad as then. Yeah, I don't know if it was to this level of paranoia when it comes to the general population um but 
it was there, but I don't know to what extent. Well, this is where we get the data dump, which is kind of classic for every indie movie. Now, you can go and listen to those reviews and see how well that's handled in an organic way. And uh, But nevertheless, there always is usually an open opening action scene. Indy uh, kind of has this brief moment of kind of rest. And then we jump into the actual plot of the movie where a character comes to him or he is brought to them. They explain something about somebody's gone missing that he's close to. And in this case, it's Oxley, which we've never heard before. How much better would it have been if we found out that Abner Ravenwood was still alive? And that's Marion's connection. Instead, I feel like this ox is supposed to be kind of this stand-in for Abner. He's this character we've never heard of, but apparently he was extremely close to Marion and Indy. I'm confused because Indy says they went to school together, but John Hurt is much older than Harrison Ford. Right. I mean, I don't think it would have worked a terrible amount with Ravenwood because Ravenwood was tied to the Ark of the Covenant. And That's true. Uh, that was more or less where he was spending most of his life exploring. So, I mean, it is fine that we have another character doing this, although it would be nice to have Abner come back. But yeah, we're, there are so many characters here that we've never heard of that have some kind of connection to Indiana Jones. But there's, of course, we haven't spent really much time developing this so it there's not very much weight to the relationship except from what they're telling us i gotta say this plot becomes very muddled with what oxley has or has not already done because right well okay give me your thoughts here and see if i'm wrong but to me it seems that oxley has figured everything out and he has gone to akator is right. that right, or has he not so, been Akator? Uh, he has been Akator, um, but he couldn't. Okay, so in the movie, when they go to like that giant, uh, uh, whatever it was called, it's filled yeah. with sand. The giant yeah. pillar filled with sand. He couldn't get past that, and so he had the skull in his hand. Couldn't get past that, and so he took it back and put it back in the grave, hopefully to, uh, hopefully to hide it from the Soviets again. Because Mutt says, "Oh, hey, there are two sets of footprints here. Maybe some guy came back." Right. So that's what happened. He did end up in the city and didn't know what to do with the skull after he got there. And then, of course, he heard about the Soviets coming. And so he put it back. Okay. Well, that makes sense. I guess my biggest issue with that is they are, and this was also a bit of my issue with the Grail Diary, except the Grail Diary is much, it's not as big a deal as this one. This is Indy not really figuring anything out for himself. This is Indy just following the easily decipherable clues already found out by Oxley. And then later on when they need the really big clues, it's easily telekinetically given to him by um, the aliens. I just don't like that at all because I want to go along with this great you know, treasure hunter and mystery solver. These mysteries are not that hard to solve because they've already been solved by Oxley and he doesn't give them very cryptic clues that, because Indy solves them like, hmm, oh, okay, Nazca Peru, got it, let's go. 
It's like, well, yeah. that was easy. Yeah, this adventure is way yeah. too easy because he ends up in the tomb where the skull is located at and he finds it right away because Oxley was there and then put it back uh, instead of hiding it somewhere maybe or whatever. It This doesn't matter. But the, the point is this this entire adventure is just way too easy for him and or just way too easy in general and yeah he's deciphering clues that have already been deciphered from oxley just to show just that just goes to show that where the location is for all the stuff yeah you're right this is for considering the last few adventures that we've had this is just way too easy and for and it just kind of feels like it was a bit lazy. I do opinion. feel like they wrote themselves into a corner with this one because Indy always needs a moral obligation to go on this adventure. It's not just like, oh, I just want to go find a treasure. It's like, oh, there is somebody that I love or care for is directly tied to this, i.e. I have to go now and I want to go save them. So... Oxley is the connection in this one. He's the moral obligation because he apparently loves Oxley. Somehow Ox is tied with Mutt. And we know that Marion is the other one. So they could have tipped their hand right away and had it been Marion. And I think that would have been reason enough. And then they could have had Oxley go with them on this adventure. So he would have had another trio. But... So that's where I feel like they they wrote themselves into a corner. They're like, well, we can't tip our hand right away, and they have to go find Oxley. But if they're going to go find Oxley, that means Oxley's already figured everything out, and they basically just have to follow in his footsteps and do everything he's already done. So for all of David Kep's musings about how great he thinks this script is and how well he is uh kind of he's like i have to kind of ignore the previous three movies and make this movie its own but i have to bring the character back into that universe once again i'm like nice try dude but eh. <laughs> right and i mean you're right it's fine to have uh oxley here because he is the emotional attachment to uh to mutt's character and that's fine but you're right it should have been Marion to be the emotional attachment to Indiana Jones because we know right. who Marion is since we've seen the first the first movie. And she's a very memorable character. So why not use her as more or less the moral obligation for Indiana Jones to begin this adventure and go and find her instead for whatever and give a and give a better reason than what they have if he ran away after the first week before the week before the wedding for some reason. It just they are it's a weak obli it's it's a weak start to this movie. It's the weak end of the first Yeah, act. it really is. Um I did want to bring up that they did give some homage to Connery when the KGB pulls out guns and Mutt pulls out a knife and Ford says you just brought a knife to a gunfight. That's a classic line from mm -hmm. Connery's character in The Untouchables, so I did like to see that. And uh, because apparently in this universe, Connery's character is dead. It's unfortunate he didn't get right. to come back, but i he's way older than Ford. So there's no way he right. could probably keep up with a really wild adventure like this one. Also, right. I do kind of want to talk about Mutt's introduction here 
because I think it is rather silly. Yeah. Uh, because he legitimately just comes out of nowhere with a with only an instruction from his mom, uh, being Marion, to find Indiana Jones or Henry Jones Jr. Yeah. And somehow he finds him just before he's getting ready to leave on a train. I guess my only thought is maybe he first went to the college and Jim Broadbent's character said, you might catch him at the train station, but Mutt, they're too focused on Mutt's glamour shot driving through the mist trying to look just like Brando or James Dean. He doesn't seem that concerned about catching him at the train station and he just so happens to see him. It's very... Uh, right. serendipitous how it all happens uh you're right their their meeting is just out of nowhere and and we just don't ever really have much of an understanding because mutt shows a picture of him and ox but that does that still explain why it's just weird because so we know indy and ox grew up as best friends Marion and them almost got married, and then he just literally abandoned them and moved to another state or something, or he just went off and joined the OSS, I guess? Right. Yeah, I. it doesn't really explain... Uh, the, only, the only thing we ever get is that Indiana Jones left a week before the wedding for whatever reason, and Marion was already pregnant. And that's really all we get. She did have another a stepfather for a while, um, those we do find, come to find out, um, but yeah, that's about it. It, their yeah, their meeting, like you just said, is very serendipitous. It just kind of feels like, like it's it just kind of feels like um, happenstance, I suppose. Once yeah, again, and this, okay, these movies always confuse me because they uh, one and three acknowledge the higher power of God and kind of uh, how he uses people's like kind of destiny to like work through and create this plan for all of them to come together two and four on the other hand are all up to chance it seems like because in the beginning of two it was just it just so happened that it was chant by chance they fell out of a plane in a raft met this hindu guy and figured out how to save these people that's very much right. this kind of um existentialist thought of chance over destiny you really don't have a destiny it's all just oh it just so happened to be this way and uh right that 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 does create for more of a weaker story when it all just seems so random and people usually turn against that you know deus ex machina type of a twist right at least with this one uh indiana jones was already going to try and look for ox uh, no, he was somebody else. He uh, was it. I'm trying to think if if he had heard about the crystal, heard about the incident um, that's happening before no, much. Shows no, up. what he says he? is they're talking about the Mitchell Hedges skull, and Indy said that he yeah. tried to look for that. We don't know when, but not recently. Indy said he nearly died of typhus trying to look for that. Right. Okay, so at least with this one, there's a bit more of an emotional attachment, having Mutt as his son and Marion come back and Oxley as the emotional support for uh, 
for Shia LaBeouf's character. So at least we have that. But you're very right. This is, once again, we're ha- living it up to happenstance that this plot just kicks into gear. Mutt somehow found Indiana Jones before he left on this train going who knows where. Uh, that kickstarts this plot. I will say I think the motorcycle chase is fairly exciting. Did you like it? It's fun, but it goes on for way too long. Yeah, it's pretty long, and it's kind of got an odd ending where they end up sliding under tables in the library. And then Indy answers a kid's question about some textbook. Right. This is my issue really with every single action scene in this movie. There's no weight to them. They're just kind of there just to be fun and and stuff, which is fine because every other action scene – I would say every action scene in any Indiana Jones movie is fun to watch, but at least with the first, with one and three, every action scene that we get has great weight to it. Like this is what has been building to this. We need to resolve whatever issue is present. This one, it just kind of feels like we have to have an action scene to spice up this plot, I guess, but it doesn't have, it just doesn't have much weight to the overall story. Unlike one and one and three had. I will disagree just a little bit with three because yes, there was, there was some action scenes that did have weight and consequences where it's like, whoa, this is serious. But then there was a few of those action scenes in the third act I felt, which were just needlessly overbearing or just too much where it's like, oh, once again, we have to fight the Nazis right for the umpteenth time in this movie. So, but for the most part, I do agree with you. But yeah, this one, I mean, yes, they have to constantly be escaping from the Russians, I guess, for most of the movie. and But this one is very much uh, lighthearted. Right. Whereas in the other ones, during chase scenes, people would be thrown out of cars, people would die, or we would see cars going off of cliffs and exploding or driving into buildings or something. This, nobody gets hurt. It's it's pretty safe. Right, right. And in, I mean, yeah, I guess what I meant to say is that most of three – has uh, pretty heavy action scenes. There are a couple that I know we talked about in the last podcast that uh, don't have as much weight to them as they probably could. But yeah, this one, I mean, it's fine as lighthearted. Two was pretty lighthearted for some of it, and three was pretty lighthearted for some of it. But the action scenes here just really feel like they're doing it out of obligation or they're doing it out of, I guess not obligation, but they're doing it out of, uh, oh, well, it's been so long since we've had an exciting scene. Let's put one in here. And especially when that happens later, when they're driving to the forest, it goes on way too long. But I mean, this one is relatively short compared to that one. So it's not a terribly big deal, but I kind of just wish that we would have a good point to what we're seeing and not just, I guess, wasting time. Also, I did want to mention a piece of trivia. Okay, you know when Mutt uh, slugs the Soch and the girl says, that's my boyfriend and she slugs him? Yeah. That is Steven Spielberg's daughter. Oh, that's hilarious. Yeah, I, I thought that was cool how he used her like that. And I love how she just punched much. She's like, that's my boyfriend and punches yeah. him. That was, that was pretty cool. That was pretty funny. There is, oh yeah, there is a little snippet right before the fight happens where Mutt takes his comb out of his pocket and brushes his hair and then yeah. turns around, dips it in the guy's water behind yes. him and then yes. brushes his hair some more. And the same girl like sees this whole thing happen and she goes and she turns to her boyfriend <laughs> while Indian and, and Mutt are talking. She goes, he just dipped your his comb in your yes. in your water or whatever, and he turns around and looks at him, gives him like this really dirty look, and then turns right back around. I just thought that was very funny. That was very funny. Okay, 
now that we're getting into kind of really the meat of the plot here, kind of wanted to bring up this uh, method of storytelling that they're using, uh, especially with ancient astronauts. And just by its nature, this theory of ancient astronauts is demythologizing, which is the process of taking a myth and then ex kind of explaining everything about it. So uh, these kind of ancient people of Egypt and South America here worshipped these gods. But what these gods really were were just aliens. And that's kind of how they explain it. It's like, oh, well, this is how we learned how to, you know, create tools and fire. And this is where our origins come from. It's not really from gods or from a god. It's from these ancient aliens that visited us and... It's kind of uh, taking those supernatural myths and then demythologizing them. So that's really what this movie does. Also, we mentioned Prometheus, AVP, and Stargate are these demythologizing tales where it just kind of explains everything to us. Gotcha. Yeah. The, and I mean, this they kind of did this with uh, kind of with two and kind of with three. Uh, but not to, I would say, this extent. Right. That is true. Two was a bit of that as well, uh, except it did really kind of play into some of those uh, Hindu thoughts. Right. But I should also bring up that Spielberg has used this demythologizing storytelling technique before. He used it in AI Artificial Intelligence, a very blatant demythologizing tale, and also in Castaway. So it doesn't surprise me that Spielberg is taking that approach here as well. It's definitely not as uh, hard-pressed, though, as in AI. Okay, I you brought up Shia LaBeouf's character, Mutt. And what kind of cements his character for me is this knife flipping where I'm like, okay, you're no James Dean. You are not cool. I just honestly, I think his character is bad. So far, he's bad. And I really don't think he gets much better, except he is actually the man of action instead of Indy, who used to be the one to always punch and fight his way out of it. But now Indy is just kind of going along with everything, whereas Mutt is like, somebody's got to do something about this. Right, right. So that's his one redeeming quality, I think. Yeah, he is very much a <clears throat> young Indiana Jones. Uh, he very much represents his father back in those earlier movies. And uh, I was when I, I was hoping that... Uh, and I'm glad this isn't happening, but I was hoping that they wouldn't pass the torch on to Shia LaBeouf and he becomes the next Indiana Jones. Yep. I don't think, at least not with that actor, that it would work very well. But yeah, matter. you're right. The really only redeeming quality that Shia LaBeouf's character has is that he is the one that is the man of action. He's always the one who's, he's the young one who has a lot of energy and so he can do a lot of stuff whereas his parents are getting old and so what they did in Raiders of the Lost Ark, they can't do as much here anymore, both in the movie and in real life. But yeah, his his character is kind of annoying. I mean, he's not nearly as annoying as Willie, thank God. But he, I, I, I guess I can see why he's here. Um, it's kind of a growing moment for Indiana Jones' character. But he, I wish he had more to do 
in, or at least had a deeper influence on the plot. It is kind of like he's there. And he's a character acting throughout the story and only really comes out and shines when there needs to be an action scene. I also should mention real quick, I don't know, maybe you could just slip this part back into the demythologizing part. Sure. But I should also bring up that Spielberg has used this demythologizing storytelling technique before. He used it in AI Artificial Intelligence, a very blatant demythologizing tale, and also in Castaway. So it doesn't surprise me that Spielberg is taking that approach here as well. It's definitely not as uh, hard-pressed, though, as in AI. Right. But yes, we get Indy and Mutt. Once again on this adventure, they're just following essentially the trail of breadcrumbs. They have now become Hansel and Gretel, you know, <laughs> trying to find Ox and uh, more Nazca line stuff and yada, yada, yada. Okay, I got to say, though, that the gravesite scene is uh, pretty cool. It reminds me of the Omen grave scene gravesite scene yes that's exactly what i was thinking when it's like all windy and stuff like that and yes. they're trying to look for the grave with shovels yeah if i'm not mistaken i believe uh kind of the first like the big aerial shot is actually a miniature oh i guess i can see that it does look pretty good like it's incorporated fairly well i gotta say i don't understand these skull spider monkey people uh they're creepy yeah. And it's reminiscent of when the skull guy moves up out of the pit. That's reminiscent of the guy in the wall from Temple of Doom. But I understand the Akator guardians. So are these people also guardians guarding the skull? I'm assuming so. The two guardians in this movie just. I don't know exactly why they're in this movie. Other than, I guess, to build a bit of lore for the story. They're they're kind of a distraction from uh, what's really supposed to be happening. I really feel like um, these two scenes, dealing with these two guardians, are really two major scenes where um, there isn't really any weight or consequences to it. I really didn't have an issue with the motor chase, motorcycle chase scene or the opening action scenes. I felt those were kind of fun introductions getting us into the plot. These should have been much more intense. Mutt is unscathed in all of them. And ultimately they all are unscathed because they have, I don't know, Indy is pretty quick, just like them. He's able to jump up at the right time. Yeah, nothing happens. This should have been more of a, Mutt is in peril moment, and he has to save them, or they both are. None of that ever happens. Right. So I, I do gotta, I do kind of want to bring up the sets in this movie. We've talked about them in every single other podcast, so they, we probably should bring, yes, them, up, up, bring them up here. Uh, the sets, now there are times, like this scene in the gravesite scene, and then kind of later on when they get to the actual final temple, uh, in the interior at least, where the sets do look very, very well done. Uh, and they would rival one and two from in my mind, uh, in terms of at least set building. Uh, then there are times when they decide to utilize CGI for whatever reason, and it makes the movie look incredibly fake. Uh, most notably would be the car chase scene through the forest. That is the one that looks like a almost like a cartoon. Because it is because the CGI is so heavily used instead of using practical effects, 
which is interesting because they at first wanted to use more practical effects, but then as time went on, they ended up utilizing more CGI in the story of this one. And it really, you can really tell. You're right. It is a disappointment. Whereas the other three movies, they progressively uh, used more visual effects. I would mostly say three, it made the biggest leap and this one has made that bigger leap as well. Uh, one barely used any um, anything aside from practical effects, I guess I would say. Uh, and it looked incredible because it was all real environments they were interacting with. And right. yeah, two was that same way as well. We loved the sets of two and three had some really obvious um, visual effects issues. And this one, yeah, uh, it's kind of this... Uh, half and half I feel where sometimes the effects are well done especially more so the physical environments do feel very real that they're in right but then yeah when you are getting um, more of those forest scenes also when they're in the it's not quicksand dry sand or whatever they want to call it it's quicksand that looked just like a set that looked horrible I thought like I'm like oh there's the matte painting in the background and that just looked really bad. So it was a disappointment to see. I feel like the sets have kind of gone down. Um, mm-hmm. When they're going through this temple, or not a temple, when they're going through this tomb, I feel like it's all fine. Um, I I mean, it's kind of on par with the uh, catacombs in Italy for me from the third one. Right. Um, this one's probably a little bit better. But uh, when Indy does go on to that... Um, moving um circular thing that allows him to move that reminded me of national treasure book of secrets yeah which came out a year before this one where they are all on top of that circular thing that does move them around right um but once again i was kind of disappointed because these uh getting through there's not much puzzle solving it's all pretty straightforward Right. Yeah, I and I, I these this is definitely not the best looking sets and it's fine to use CGI in an Indiana Jones movie. That's not the problem. The problem is the they overuse it and to a point where like I just said it at times makes the movie look incredibly fake. The best example I just gave is that car chase scene through the forest. It just looks that and then when they're climbing uh when they're climbing up like the stairs to get inside the tomb, it just doesn't look great. But there are times when they can utilize it to their advantage, which is to expand the landscape and make and create more of an immersive world off in the distance and use more practical effects in the foreground. That's fine. That's I don't that doesn't bother me at all. But it does bother me that they heavily relied on CGI and part of this was due to the fact that Spielberg didn't really want to go outside the UA the USA because he wanted to stay close to his family and so some of these scenes had to be uh, used with CGI unfortunately and and that was always a big selling point even in the teaser trailers for the previous movies they would show that they were filming in four different parts of the world. Right. Whereas from what it sounds like, what you said, this one is mostly just filmed in the United States. Yeah. On a lot of backlots, on a lot of stages. Yeah. I did also find it interesting how we have uh, kind of a reaffirmation of the polytheistic nature 
of this entire series because Mutt said, God said is not like that. And Dindy said, depends on who your God is. Now, I'm not really taking that too seriously, but it does seem to, and this movie does affirm that there are these gods or aliens. And the second one definitely affirmed the Hindu gods are real, but that also the Christian God and Hebrew God is real. So I I don't really like that aspect of it though, where we just like what's the god of the month now and we're gonna use that as our plot device and call upon this god's power and find this god's artifact it i don't know it it really doesn't work it works in one and three but in two and four it's it's a really big stretch yeah see that line i just kind of took it as oh it depends on uh it depends on what uh tribe or what like civilization you're talking to but that is more or less affirmed later on in the movie when, uh-oh, aliens are real, <laughs> which is totally, we'll get there, I guess. But yeah, that's kind of what I took that line as to be is depending on what civilization you're talking to is what God looks like, more or less, or what a God looks like. And of course, now we go to another new location to Iha Aramaka. Oh, just it's deep in the Amazon, I guess, even though <laughs> it looks all very fake. Yeah. Um, I do like the dialogue between Mac and Indy. I think that's kind of well-written. A lot of funny lines like, unshackle me, I'll give you a big hug, and um, I'm going to break your nose and right. whatnot. But then once we get into the staring at the alien skull and we get this horrible monologue from Kate Blanchett's character, uh, none of this is working for me. Yeah, this scene goes on for way too long. And it becomes, it gets to a point where it's just like, oh, this is boring. Because all it is is just spilling exposition. But not all of it, I don't think, is necessarily needed for this time. Or at least not this time. And it, we spend probably about 10, 15 minutes here on like this camp where, and then Indy has to look into the mind, of the, uh, into the eyes of the skull. Um, he's interrogated all kinds of sorts of stuff. It just, and then he later on, tries to help is helping them out to find out where the next where i guess where the temple is at this scene just goes on for too long and it, there is not necessarily all that interesting i also got to say this villain really shows his hand to be a snidely whiplash muahaha type of character where she's like we will control your minds we will have the power to take over the world and right. I, it gets to be very goofy uh very quickly and then i just have an even bigger issue though and it's the issue of indy is quote forced to help the bad guys but then they develop this mutual kinship in order to find the goal and that really bugs me because indy was never this way in the other movies if he did have to help them it was always very reluctantly, and the only it, it, okay, it's not as bad as when they used uh, voodoo magic to control him. That was right, really dumb. But to me, I'm like, wait a minute, these Russians and in Indy are like, he's like, because he's always like that. He's like, okay, give me a map, give me some shotgun shells. No, he should be figuring out a way to escape, and that's where I feel Mutt's character is redeemed. Where Mutt is like, what are you doing? We need to get away. We are their prisoners. Uh, I really don't appreciate the indie uh, Russian team up. 
Yeah, I agree. And the other ones, he's always trying to find a way out of it. And there are only a few times where he's actually forced to do something. Uh, but even this act, even this scene when they do escape is a waste of time because they walk, they run off, they get stuck in quicksand, more or less. Uh, they find out that Mutt is Indy's son, and then they are captured again. Yeah, it's really on the nose. It's a Indy and Marion are forced, literally forced. They can't go anywhere. They're forced to talk about their feelings and I know they're repressed whatnot uh yeah it all comes out very quickly it's not very organic and this is where the family dynamics come in okay so if I thought the family dynamics weren't uh they could have been better developed they were developed fine but I do wish there was more in the third one this one is horrible it's just plain horrible Because everything is so dismissed, like it's no big deal. Uh, They're like, oh, by the way, I'm your son. It's like, oh, okay. And they're like, you left me at the altar. Well, not really, but nearly that way. And I was with child. And then he's like, well, okay, I'm sorry. And then all is right with the world. There's a joke at the end where uh, Mutt calls out Indy and says, uh, why didn't you? Why didn't you stick around, Dad? And it's just a big laugh. I, I'm like, right. wait a minute, that's actually a serious issue. And it, it was so poorly handled. Where Indy is making this joke about, you know, hey, Mutt, why don't you, you know, stick at school or whatever? And he's like, why don't you stick around? And then it's just a shot of Indian Marion smiling. Right, right. That's kind of the biggest thing, not just with this in general. Although it does include this, but like just the whole movie, it's all just too perfect. That's just kind of thing. At least with the first three, they were they got down and got pretty dirty with stuff, and they didn't hide. They didn't shy away from Indy having to do things that you normally wouldn't see. He would normally wouldn't do, or something along the lines of that. Is I guess un-American in terms of cinema when it comes to our day and age. This one is just feels way too perfect. The script is perfect. Everything's fine for the most part. Nothing feels like they're taking some kind of risk to progress Indy's character any farther or tell and tell a story that would that would hit heavier in today's day and age. It just kind of feels like everything here is just too perfect. And I don't like that. Well, and there's a reason you don't like it and I don't like it is because it's just poor storytelling. This is a moral flaw with the character where we have realized this guy we always thought was pretty great actually left his wife and unborn child and pretty much abandoned them for 20 years. And I mean, he wasn't completely aware of that situation, but regardless yeah, it still was a bad situation. So this kind of turns me against the character of Indy. I'm like, okay, well, he's really not that much of a stand-up guy after all. So if you're going to introduce this character flaw, then you have to have some kind of redemption. And that's exactly what they did with the third one. Indy's character, or kind of moral flaw, you could say, was how he has kind of just abandoned his dad. That was his family that he really didn't want anything to do with. And in the end, he could have either chosen the Grail or he could have chose his dad. I guess this is a bit of a spoiler alert, but not really. Yeah. So he does choose his dad. We don't ever get 
any of that kind of perilous choice here where he the character redeems himself like you said it's just glossed over very quickly it's all too perfect it seems of no consequence then why even bring it up or write it that way if you're not going to provide any sort of kind of redeeming resolution that the audience can signal like connect with right and i i I understand you're right and that the fact that they should have done something with it i understand why it's here because they need to put mutt somewhere and they need it they need a character uh sidekick more or less for indiana jones Every almost every movie has had well actually every movie has had a sidekick of some sort, whether that be his dad or short round or Marion in the first one. So that's what Mud is in this one. He's more or less his sidekick. But at the same time he they wanted to make they wanted to have some kind of emotional attachment to him, so they made it so Indy was the dad. But this movie doesn't need that. They don't we don't it's fine to have Indy have a son. That's not the problem. The problem is the fact that they don't ever spend any time incorporating the father and son dynamics deeper into the story like three did, where we get to see what ha- what he learned in three and bring it back here in four and have him tested that. That never really happens. We don't really get any of that. It just is like you said, like I said, glossed over. Yes, he did leave his mother is was going to be wife and soon to be son uh, and left them and did his own thing. But they never, that should have been incorporated deeper into the story, but it's not. It's just like, oh, this happened. And then they just walk off from it. Okay. I want to talk about pretty much, you could say the central action scene of the movie. It was very much played up in the trailers. A lot of people identify this scene when they think of kingdom of the crystal skull. They're like, oh yeah, it's this scene. So to me, this is very much uh, at least what they're doing, very much like the endless runway from Fast 7. Ah, yes. Oh, no, that's from Fast 6. Oh, okay. Well, you get what I'm saying. They're going on this endless jungle runway. CGI is horrible. The one thing I do like about it is Indy finally takes action by kicking the guy. That's the Indy we know and love. He's not just going to sit there or even help the bad guys i mean that that's uncon that's inconceivable indy would help the nazis but these are the soviets and the communists killed way more people than the nazis ever did so just this uh you know kind of wash like uh watering down of these bad guys is uh it, it doesn't do anything for the movie it, it kind of turns me against it we also have kung fu we've resorted to kung fu from uh, the the bad lady whose name I just can't remember, Spalco. Spalco just starts doing horrible kung fu on Shia. Uh, and then Shia starts swinging from the trees like a monkey or like Tarzan. Oh, come on. And he lands in the right vehicle, even though the vehicles have already passed him. I put in my notes, wow, wow, all caps, wow. This scene, this I've talked about, I've mentioned this a couple of times before we got here, but this scene goes on for an incredible amount of time to a point where it becomes boring because it just keeps going and doesn't end. And then it just keeps trying to top itself and top every other Indiana Jones scene that's come before it by having Mutt swing through the vines with the monkeys. Are you kidding me? It that scene, This scene is honestly quite baffling to me at least in this part because 
I guess their idea was to continue to make things bigger. Bigger is better in their minds. When And then they go so far as to have Mutt do this, where he's swinging on the vines, and it's just like, oh. I, it's kind of hard to explain, because the, the scene, this is the part of the movie that like legitimately broke me, because they just kept doing things, and they kept elongating this action sequence to go on for about 15 minutes. And it gets to this point where it's just like, okay, can we just slow down? Because like I mentioned earlier, almost every action scene in this movie has no weight to it. And this one has a little bit, but I would say that it does not need to be this long at all. This could have been cut down significantly. And it's just, most of it's just there purely for enjoyment and not for really any storytelling um, other than to get them from point A to point B. And here's a little fun action sequence to do that instead of having some kind, like the car chase in one where Indy is trying to get the arc away from the Nazis is when they are trying to deal with the skull, but it keeps throwing, being thrown back and forth. And next thing we know, we're sword fighting on two different vehicles and then it, freaking Mutt is swinging through the vines with monkeys. Like, how did we get here? Right, you're right. This is the same as in number one, where he's trying to get the arc back like this. They're trying to get the skull back. But the the reason that one is so much better is because there was so much gravity to the situation. It was extremely intense. All these stunts were completely believable because most, if not all of them, were real. Harrison Ford was physically strapped to the front of a truck in front of the left front wheel it was all very dangerous and very exciting because of that. There are in a clearly CGI safe environment. It goes into the realm of just being hokey with these monkeys uh, swinging around and sword fighting, fencing literally across cars and doing the splits and getting yourself racked uh, in that area. Yeah, it, it takes all of that and makes it very cartoonish, very kid-friendly. And I will say, if you're a younger kid like I was when you watched it, then you'll enjoy this movie. And, I mean, there's really nothing wrong with that if you're younger and you enjoy this movie. Because I would say it is a fun adventure, but when you do grow up, you can see the previous movies, aside from two, are better adventures and more of an adult adventure than just kind of this, you know fun and fancy free type of uh, kid adventure so in that aspect um I, I will give it a pass for that age group but then what i don't give a pass to this age group is it seems like in every indiana jones movie we have to have some gratuitous graphic death scene of some kind uh, some are more believable and some are more scarier than others this ant scene always frightened me and even to this day it is gratuitous for no reason we don't need to see ants crawling into his mouth and it's eating him up what this ant scene doesn't need to be here no it, it was about it was actually at this moment when i kind of just gave up with the movie because uh it's we're wasting time that's the thing this movie loves to just waste time on Seemingly on things that don't be in this movie at all. Like a lot of the action sequences, like I mentioned, don't have any weight to them. Therefore, I feel as if we're just wasting time. It's fine if they're going to be enjoyable or whatever. But at least with one, two, and three, they, there was a point to almost every action scene that we had. This one 
there's very little reason for a lot of the stuff to be here. And we waste a lot of time. And so the pacing of this movie is just all over the place because we'll have this really, really quick uh, chase scene or action scene and then we'll talk for like 15 minutes and then another one that goes on for a long time this was long sections of this movie are divvied up into an action scene a talking scene an action scene a talking scene and it gets to a point where it's just like okay now we're just wasting time we just get to what the point of this movie is and this ants is where it broke me it's just like okay we're just getting rid of characters just to get rid of them these ants or for whatever reason they're here sure they're gratuitous but whatever they in my mind they really shouldn't even be here in the first place because we're creating recreating danger for the sake of continuing the plot but not really being integral to the story yeah this is a clearly a callback indy's fighting a big russian it's just a rehash of indy fighting the big nazi at the end of the first one right they want that to be a visual callback and they really didn't show any of the graphic death of the first one. And now they're like, we're going to make this over-the-top graphic. I don't know why, just for the new generation. I think that's probably the, the wrong choice. And ultimately, when they drive off of the cliff and use the tree branch to break their fall, oh. I put in my notes, Looney Tunes, anyone? Oh, yeah. Like, legitimately from Looney Tunes. That's not even an exaggeration. But then it gets worse, and we further have to suspend our belief when they go over three massive waterfalls that they ate. The first time, they should have all fallen out. I don't think there's right. seatbelts in those. Plus, it's like they can nobody can figure it out like three times a – what? What could that mean? They, they actually say that. And then yeah. they all should have been dead, but they are magically land on shore – perfectly unharmed marion is sitting in the upright position with the steering wheel laughing I, I okay i don't mind having fun but the lengths of suspension of of belief is incredible yeah they they really are in this movie it really tests how far you're willing to take it with indiana jones because like we mentioned the, the last three have always been based in some kind of realism where at least we can logically understand how we get to places in the movie even though may not be accurate but that's fine right you you under you get to you believe that we made it to that moment because of the suspension of disbelief and how far they take it in those this one really stretches that and th like i mentioned there was right at this chase scene where i just like okay i'm basically i'm done with this movie it's it's not taking itself as seriously as it needs to be to make it enjoyable or it's not making it believable at the very least it's We've fallen over three waterfalls now and everyone's just perfectly fine. Nothing happened. In which case, why did we waste time on that? Um, we, at least they come across, at least we're getting close to the end. We're half an hour from the end of this movie. That's nice. Well, I also, I just am really frustrated by the fact that they're still continuing to get this skull. Uh, so they could have, ditch the skull and let Spalco return it because we know it's going to destroy her. But for some unexplained reason, Mutt... See, okay, the movie has made me turn to Mutt's side where Mutt is the real hero. He's the one doing everything. He's the one with any sort of logic that nobody else seems to have. They're just going along with whatever Indy has to say. Mutt says, let's just throw it in the river. And Indy says, no. The skull told me I have to return it. So you just do what a uh, skull tells you to do? 
Well, even from a storytelling standpoint, it's kind of silly because no matter who, no matter what happened, even if Spockle had it, she dies anyways. Exactly. So I mean, it's, it's it's there's really no point to it anyways in the first place. It doesn't make any sense, and this is something that they will kind of fudge on the rules that they originally created in the first act was whoever returns the school is basically essentially granted unlimited power, you know, AKA any wish that you want. Spalco doesn't return the school. So there should be a scene where I think, is it Indy who puts the skull back? It is. I think so, yeah. Okay. I mean, he kind of walks up to it and it goes and just like flies out of his right. hands. So, but yeah, basically he returns it. Well, then he should have been the one that he could either choose to have some kind of ultimate power of artifact finding or something, or he could have chosen um, to be with his new family. There's no moral choice there. There's no choice at all. Spalco just runs in and she's like, I want knowledge, unlimited knowledge. It's all so I want to know it all, she says. I want to know it all. Yeah. Sounds like Tommy Wiseau there. Oh, hi, doggy. Why couldn't Tommy Wiseau have been the villain? That would have been the best thing ever. Uh, that actually would have been great. So, <laughs> <laughs> But do you see what I mean? Do you see how really empty this whole end is? They break the rules they establish. Right. They don't even give uh, the character a choice like he always does in the end of every single one. He can choose to look and open his eyes in the end. He can uh, pick the cup or his dad. You know, he can rescue these people or not, or he can die. This is all just so easy and so weak, and I'm so disappointed. There is no character or moral redemption here, and it's just extremely disappointing. Right, and every other movie up to this point has dealt with some kind of basic human struggle. The last one dealt with fact versus truth, which is more or less saying, you know, what are you going to believe the evidence or are you going to believe your personal beliefs or things that are unseen? The first one was about uh, more, it was closer to archaeology and uh, how, and say, Indy was one who wanted to use it for a museum versus the one who wanted versus Belloc, who wanted to use it for his own personal gain and own personal power for selfish reasons. This one is more about the pursuit of knowledge, which is fine. I mentioned this earlier that I this idea doesn't bother me one bit, but the way that they handle it is so silly that it's even that it makes the movie just hard to relate to in the end. Because yeah, like you said, he doesn't get that choice. Uh, I think really the only choice he had was to give the skull back. Um, but at the same time, there really is no element to the story that makes it feel like it, like it really is grounded. Like those, at least one and three are, it just kind of feels like, Oh, well, if you try to, you can't know everything. Ha ha. And then it ends. Right. I, there, there usually is always a lesson to be learned in all of them. I don't know. I, I'm trying to draw a blank about, a lesson with two except it does somewhat reaffirm good versus evil where this one really doesn't because there's just no final conflict at the end and if i thought uh donovan's death was unsatisfying in three this one is very unsatisfying as well because her eyes catch on fire like general grievous and then she 
just blows up. Okay. Uh, yeah. Essentially, her mind just legitimately blows. Yep. It literally blows her mind. But literally. Uh, so I was kind of wondering. So there's 13 in a circle. And we already mentioned this is a demythologizing tale of how uh, humanity's use of religion is just uh, their way of understanding how uh, science and facts are actually real. But at the time, they couldn't understand this scientific technology, so they just mistook it and created religion, and that's kind of their weak way of understanding it. Maybe I'm stretching here, but is uh, the 13 in a circle possibly a subversion of Christ's 12 apostles and the 13th is Christ? Uh, it's just the number 13. I think that would be a – yeah, I think that would be a stretch um, because there really isn't any other Christian themes in the rest of this movie. Well, not, uh, but I I was just wondering if that was their further way of demythologizing the story is, oh yeah, you know Christ and his 12 apostles. Well, long before them, there were 13 alien gods who were upon the world. But I will say that it is pretty great when she, when Speckle's like, I, I want to know everything. And then basically all the skulls around them all become one. And then it's just really terrible looking alien that looks at her and oh and then she explodes and then the spaceship takes off and the whole place is just in rubble and oh i actually remember seeing this i remember before i actually watched the movie all the way through i saw this ending on tv and i was baffled that this was indiana jones and then i ended up watching the whole movie later but this ending is maddening right and it does kind of play with this um, postmodern notion, whereas in the other ones, there's always one god who could defeat the forces of evil, whereas now it's this kind of collective hive mind conscience, which that's kind of what postmodern is. It's the idea of this collective shaping of reality through the unity of oneness, which is also kind of this uh, monism. And uh, superiority is derived from the collective, not the individual. But this also introduces a problem which the movie undermines itself with. So these aliens are supposed to be super powerful, but clearly they're not powerful. If you just take a head, then they're incapacitated. And clearly their knowledge as a hive mind is undermined by taking away one head. So that argument just kind of collapses in on itself. Right. Yeah, I mean, we don't ever really get anything out of what these aliens can do other than they they came to earth and showed the humans that were here at the time different ways of cultivating and all this kinds of stuff but yeah we never than that we never get anything else out of what else they can do except the fact that they came from another dimension like are you serious yeah, it does kind of undermine itself that I guess they are just – they're all so powerful, but if you take one of the heads, then, then it's not. I guess it does at least have that uh, theme of the ultimate you know, lust for power or knowledge will be your downfall. Right. That, this is, once again, keeping in line with every other Indiana Jones movie has always had this lust for power from the, uh, from the enemy or I guess the antagonist. And so I, I come to the conclusion, like you were just saying, what were the consequences slash purpose of helping the, quote, all-powerful aliens return to the space between spaces? This is without meaning, ultimately, in the movie. 
basically, yeah. I mean, I guess it's more about the journey than it is the where it's more about the journey than it is where you end up. I guess that that's kind of what it's going for. But at the same time, yeah, this doesn't exactly have a very satisfying ending to it. Unlike three, one or three, or some maybe even two for that matter. It, it. This pursuit of knowledge is represented in a very weird and non-Indiana Jones-like way. And I think that's this main... I think it's his biggest downfall, is that it doesn't handle the this big theme of knowledge and the pursuit of knowledge in the best way that Indiana Jones should have been able to handle it. Aliens is... I mean, I understand the correlation between knowledge and aliens, but not in Indiana Jones. Right, and it does seem that knowledge was their treasure because they did mention that, how... I thought this was a city of gold, and they're like, well, no, knowledge was their treasure. But right. the biggest issue with that is apparently they only wanted to share their knowledge with what is now a dead culture. And right. what is the point then? There's clearly other more advanced cultures they could share their knowledge with now. But I guess they just wanted to come kickstart civilization, go sit on their thrones, and somehow become just skeletons and then somebody stole it but then re-putting it back on is what would activate it and get them off none of this makes any sense the rules just don't make any sense if they were already all attached how do you unattach one right i i don't know so my thought is uh they mention they say somewhere your grandpa is laughing in the space between spaces, Indy Five, anyone? Uh, <laughs> I just hope it's better than this. That's all I want. That's all I want. CGI Sean Connery. No, please don't do that. In the fourth dimension. Oh, in, that's yeah, what the next Indiana one is going to be. In the fourth dimension. Indiana Jones, the fourth dimension. Okay, that's it. Got that's it. the next movie. Well, it ends with a marriage scene, which is. Uh, I, I'm glad they get married. So that's a, a positive affirmation of yep. marriage. It's a pro family message. I like that they use the words of Christ, what God put together, let no man tear asunder. Um, we have, I think, a good message of how much of human life is lost in weight. Uh, it's not really qualified with anything such as uh, follow your heart or follow the truth. It's left ambiguous up to the viewer, which is exactly. Um, what what they kind of want us to think right yeah this ending scene is it's nice it's nice we have a conclusion to marion and indy's character uh it is kind of a bait and switch but not really when the hat blows when the door is open and the hat blows from the stand the coat rack to mutt's foot and then indy picks it up like you were saying earlier seeming to find that he has more adventures to go on and he's not done yet so yeah right it's kind of nice, nice ending i'm glad that they didn't spend too... At least this feels a bit more wrapped up than 3 did. That's nice. That is true. It does... And I guess uh, this would be a nice... I do appreciate this as a nicer conclusion to the series. Although we kind of have this entire like schizophrenia throughout the whole movie of yeah. chance versus destiny, purpose versus... Uh, well, I guess that would just be destiny as well. But you get what I'm saying. Yeah. There yeah. doesn't, but really... at the same time, though, we don't ever really get to see how what the characters learn throughout the story, and incorporate yeah. that in this epilogue per se. 
Because at least in one, we got that. We got to see that Indy wasn't able to get the Ark and put it into a museum and that it was just going to be stored away in Air 51, right? We never do see how what the characters learned over this adventure, except for, I guess, Mutt, uh, and how that impacts him now. Right. I guess the journey is what reunited them all back together, what got them to get married. He found out he had a son. They saved Oxley. I Somehow he is no longer insane. Right. I guess that's just supposed to be the, the whole outcome. But, Alan, what is your rating and recommendation for Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull? Oh, boy. Uh, it starts off pretty all right, actually. And then as the movie goes along, it just kind of is this downward spiral into eventually we talk into eventually we get to see a CGI alien blow up the main villain. I can feel Indiana Jones in this movie. And I think that there are a lot of aspects to this that would only really work in an Indiana Jones movie. Uh, however, this movie just just loves to just waste time. There are so many scenes that could and probably should have been cut down and and shortened or taken out entirely. Like the action scene there towards the end is extremely too long. It needed to be cut down. Or Mutt's character needed to have a be- a better a bigger purpose into the actual story. Or there are many things that are in this script that don't aren't really incorporated very well into the overall plot. And that really makes for a very segmented viewing experience of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, and the Last Crusade, Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. There are things to enjoy about it. I think this, even though there it is CGI ridden and at times looks like it's extremely fake, it does look good at a lot of moments. The sets are still good. Once again, this is nothing new. Uh, but at the same time, they rely too heavily on CGI, and it makes a lot of the scenes look really fake and really dated, even for only being in 2008, only being about almost a decade old now. Would I recommend it? No, I can't recommend this one. This is one that this is easily in my mind the weakest of the three of the four, uh, on the basis more or less of a storytelling perspective. Uh, it doesn't work. This at times feels like Indiana Jones and at times is not Indiana Jones. I feel like they're pushing their, they are really pushing this suspension of disbelief to a level that Indiana Jones should not even gone to. This pursuit of knowledge is fine. I really do would like to see Indiana Jones do that. But at the same time, if you're going to do that, do it well and do it like how Indiana Jones would do it. Not like not resulting to aliens, which is honestly just, I feel like a cop out in my mind. That all being said, you can enjoy it, but at the same time, you have three other movies that I feel are stronger, especially one and three. Those are very, very tight in terms of storytelling and their script and their message. This one is really weak. Um, I'm going to have to give it a five out of ten. It's going to be a pretty pretty solid not recommend from me. Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull is an unwelcome return to what we believe to be The Last Crusade. I've noticed that the odd-numbered movies are mostly solid mysteries about Judeo-Christian artifacts that involve excitement and a definitive battle of good versus evil and good winning in the end. The even-numbered movies, on the other hand, are silly, demythologized tales of aliens and pagan gods, which leaves us with with no real substantial conclusion, except using the power of the pagans against the pagans as the best way to defeat them. That isn't very satisfying, and neither is this movie. It has a mostly solid first act, 
an absurd second act, which gives us every reason to lose faith in our protagonist, and an action-packed third act, which rings hollow. Ultimately, what's the point? They helped E.T. get back home? The mystery, (laughs) Pretty much. The mystery created in the 1970s book Chariot of the Gods about aliens being our creator or instructor and religious worship of them is a misguided attempt by ancient civilization is a foolish misunderstanding of higher beings which we may become someday. There is no true god, only a higher being which evolved into a hive mind and a hive body is a cliche of the sci-fi genre and one this movie doesn't use well. It's hard to root for Indy because he doesn't figure out much. Once again, we have a lack of tone between this gratuitous death scene and cartoonish action. Relationship dynamics are quickly brushed aside, and vague or unexplained reasons are given why our heroes must return the Crystal Skull, except that the plot dictates they must. None of the protagonists learn anything from the experience. I guess they learned that they just need to stick together as a family and that's how they get things done more has learned from the villains that the thirst of ultimate knowledge is a narcissistic fancy that leads to our demise and betrayal of friends for the riches of this world leads to not having either those are good lessons but the journey there was empty and fairly pointless like i said this one was nostalgic for me because this was one of the first blu-rays i owned and uh, I, I really did enjoy watching it when I was much younger. I've seen it a bunch, but now equipped with a richer understanding of storytelling, I can see how hollow this movie is. I'm giving Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull four stars out of ten with a solid not recommend. It's unfortunate that we had to come back to this. Yes. It's really unfortunate. It's unfortunate. So... We gave two recommends and two not recommends. What does give me hope if we ever get Indy 5 is that it will be an odd-numbered movie. And there's been a clear pattern established, like I mentioned. The odd-numbered movies are solid movies that everybody really loves. And the even-numbered movies, people are either don't really like or they just really don't like altogether and they do have weird stories right and to be fair at least two and three do try and push that indiana jones formula so there is that they try to do something new with the character instead of doing the same thing again uh with uh the same kind of artifacts and the same similar very very similar themes and style uh so at least they do that they are willing to try something new which i do commend them for but at the same time uh, you need to make it work. They don't, those two don't work very well without some kind of basis. Like the other two have, uh, at least the first one has formed that's formulated. So where does Indy go from here? Well, Indy five has been rumored for quite a while. I know at one point, uh, a lot of people were actually pushing for Chris Pratt to be the next Indiana Jones And it might work. I think he has kind of proven himself to kind of have this uh, rugged mysteriousness of uh, kind of that smolder we get from the Jurassic Park movies. Uh, He's in really good shape now, and he can also balance humor fairly well. And clearly these movies like to be very humorous and lighthearted and also at the same time dark and violent. We'll see. Uh, I can't see Ford returning. 
for a next one because if Ford is in the next one, he'll be 77, only three years away from being 80 years old. I mean, he was well done in um, the last Star Wars movie he was in, but he did nothing on the level of what he did in this movie because he did quite a bit of running, jumping, a lot of his own stunts. It's a lot, and Spielberg did say in the feature if Ford wants to do another one or another movie like this, he thinks he'd be good for another 10 years. Well, it's past It's past 10 years now. I just can't see him returning. Can you? I can, but it'd be a very different adventure to have him back. And I'm more scared to have Chris Pratt come back, not because it's a new guy in the shoes, but I'm just scared that we're going to get Jurassic World and Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom out of an Indiana Jones movie with a more modern actor. Unless Spielberg is at the helm, which he might end up being. At the same time, though, I, I can see Harrison Ford coming back and him being more like a Henry Jones Sr. kind of a character in that movie. Yeah, that's a good point. But, I, it would, of course, we don't know what's happening yet. They've pushed it all the way back to 2020 at this point for the release of the next Indiana Jones. And so who really knows if it'll actually be then or if it won't. Right. I did hear, I feel like it is solidifying a little more than it has, but that still doesn't mean much. But we'll see. So for now, we are closing the books on this Indiana Jones retrospective series. It was good to go back and rewatch them. I own all four, and it's nice to reevaluate them in a way that I hadn't before and really sit down, realize the ones I love, the ones I hate. Uh, it ended up being 50-50, good and bad. But once again, listeners, thank you for joining us on this Indiana Jones retrospective series. I hope you had as much fun with it as we did. We've got a lot of great retrospective series coming up. We will be finishing the Halloween series here very soon. And I'm very excited to see the new movie. We will be coming back uh, within this month, I believe, to see the Rob Zombie remake of Halloween. One I've seen a bunch, but now that I'm older... I'm interested to see what my thoughts are and what Alan's thoughts are and ultimately our recommendation for that movie. So you're not going to want to miss that review. And uh, you can definitely catch up with us in the archives. Also, if you want some bonus podcasts, you want some audio commentaries, our thoughts on the latest movie news and trailers for just a very small price, for you know less than a cup of coffee, you can go and uh, get all of that great content. Head on over to our Patreon page. We'll link in the description below. Make sure to follow us on your favorite social media platforms so you can always stay up to date. And of course, you can follow us through email on our website. Make sure to like and share this with your friends. Go ahead if you're listening on iTunes or another podcasting service that lets you review. Give us a five-star rating if you enjoyed this. We love to hear your comments and we love to uh, hear your feedback. And it does help us actually get noticed uh, by more people. And we love talking about movies and we love talking about them with you. So make sure to share this with your friends and uh, make sure to stick around because we've still got a bunch of great content for you to uh, check out in the archives and we will be giving you new podcasts every single week on Monday. So make sure to stay tuned for those and we will catch you next time, listeners.